Hey, y'all, it's the NPR Politics Podcast here with an early edition of Monday Mail. Friday Mail has not so good a ring to it, but fine. Uh, We're going to spend time answering your questions about the issues, what we see on the campaign trail, and anything else you are curious about. I, with a slight head cold, am Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. So we're going to get to your questions ASAP. But before we start, really quick, we have to discuss uh, what Donald Trump said today, this morning, um, at an event in D.C. at his newly opened Trump Hotel. He said this. President Barack Obama was born in the United States, period. Now... We all want to get back to making America strong and great again. So this was a thing in the news this week because he was facing new questions about whether or not he actually believes Obama was born here in the U.S. Trump's campaign issued a statement this week saying he does believe it. And today he finally said it. But got to point out the one thing he also said was that Hillary Clinton began this thing. Hillary Clinton and her campaign of... 2008 started the birther controversy. I finished it. I finished it. You know what I mean. That's not true. She uh, has never herself taken part in any uh, claims that Obama was not born here. What do we make of this and what he said today? Well, I mean, this is something that's haunted Donald Trump for uh, a few years. and But it's also part of a strong constituency of his supporters uh, who do believe this. It's not true, obviously. We've talked many times that President Obama was born in Hawaii. Donald Trump finally did talk about it this morning, but tried to draw this false equivalence between Hillary Clinton's campaign and him leading the charge on the birther movement. I mean, Hillary Clinton uh, did not say that Obama was not born in the United States. There was a memo that one of her chief strategists had sent out Uh, trying to win over superdelegates, othering Barack Obama, talking about his time growing up in Indonesia. It had been something that some fringe supporters had talked about on blogs in 2008, but Hillary Clinton had always disavowed, had never brought this up, and that cannot be compared to how Donald Trump championed this cause over several years. Uh, I agree with everything Domenico said. I mean, Donald Trump was the most preeminent birther in the country. He was oh, yeah. the most prominent. He he pushed this theory more than any figure in the Republican Party. And the question now is, what are we, about six weeks from Election Day? Does it really change the way people perceive him? As Domenico said, there are still a significant number of people in this country who do question where Barack Obama was born, in part because people like Donald Trump fed and fueled the theology of birtherism. There is also an overlap here in terms of how alienating birtherism has been to uh, particularly African-American voters who believe that uh, birther conspiracies are part of sort of a larger effort to delegitimize President Obama and his election. Uh, It's an ugliness in American politics. And today is the first time that Donald Trump has said directly himself, not through a spokesman, not through a a campaign surrogate, that he believes Barack Obama was born in the United States. But here's the thing, though, like for him to say that he ended this thing in 2011, that's not true. After... Obama came forward with these documents. Trump continued to raise questions about the issue. He raised questions about whether the actual birth certificate was valid. He was tweeting and in interviews 
raising these birther questions still very, very recently. Um, here is tape of Trump in an interview with an Irish TV station in May of 2014. The president should come clean. He should have come clean over the years. And, you know, if you remember the very famous story where I offered him $5 million if he shows some basic records and he never took me up on it, and that would be for charity. So charities would have benefited and it would have been a great but, thing. But he is a citizen. He produced that long form, form birth cert. Well, a lot of people don't agree with you and a lot of people feel it wasn't a proper certificate. And that's significant because his campaign released a statement yesterday before Donald Trump spoke today saying that he'd ended it in 2011. It's not true. Clearly <laughs> it's not, not true. true. I mean, he even tweeted once that the Hawaiian official who produced that document was killed in a suspicious fashion. Yeah. <laughs> like right. this kind of stuff he was still doing all over the last five years. And I also think it's worth pointing out a couple things. One, he did not apologize to President Obama today for peddling a false conspiracy theory. And two, that we're 53 days away from an election. And he's deciding to do this now. So it's kind of hard not to see it as nakedly political. It also does remind voters that Donald Trump has been in this campaign uniquely open to uh, believing or giving credence to conspiracy theories, yeah. which is something that prior Republican nominees have not done. John McCain, John McCain against and Mitt Romney, who both ran against President Obama in 2008 and 2012, both very directly and pointedly shot down birtherism, never questioned where or how President Obama was born. And this is very different for Donald Trump. I'm also perplexed by the brevity of his statement today on this for someone who could talk at length about the birther issue for a few months and a few years honestly to think that literally a two-line statement just closes that whole thing no no and you know with polls tightening all this does is bring back and remind people of one of the fringiest things that he's believed that was at the core of his of support his with by the way overwhelmingly white conservatives. You know, just look at someone like Colin Powell, the former Republican Secretary of State. In those hacked emails, he said that the birther movement was racist. Yeah. Okay, it's question time. First one comes from Jesper, who recorded his question for us. Hi, NPR Politics. My name's Jesper. I'm Swedish. I live in Tokyo, Japan, and I like to follow American politics on your podcast. International. Mm. Um, I have a question about the tone of the campaign. There's a popular conception that the tone of political campaigning is more negative and nastier now than it ever has been before. Is this true? Were things really better before? Was campaigning more civil and cordial in the 1950s or the 1850s? Or have things always been dirty? And it's just that our news cycle now is so much more extreme, and that's why we notice it. Uh, the thing I always like to say about this is there's no such thing as the good old days. Yeah. Right? Like, there was never a golden period of American politics where politicians were polite and the discourse was above board and campaigns were, were not nasty. I mean, this goes back to, if anything, I think if you go back historically and look at the early campaigns, for president and for Congress during the revolution and our founding fathers were some of the nastiest campaigners <laughs> ever known in Nasty this country. Old founding um, fathers. <laughs> what Jesper hits on that I think is accurate is that we consume campaigns at a pace and a, and a ferocity. And that makes it feel worse. Yes. And that makes it feel like it's all consuming. 
And other like side point that I would say is that in the in an era of the campaign finance laws and rules that we live in, there is a much more incentivized system to run negative ads than positive ads. And that negative ads are not only more effective, but you're less likely to be accused of colluding with a campaign if you run a negative ad versus a positive ad. So we have built a system that incentivizes that incentivizes negativity. You know, I mean, to Sue's point, right, the good old days weren't always good and tomorrow ain't as always as bad as it seems, to quote Billy Joel. But, <laughs> but I mean, Sue's right. I mean, you look back at the uh, 1800 campaign, for example, um, Jefferson running against John Adams, and you had really kind of the rise of the first political operative in this guy named James Callender, who was going around accusing Adams of wanting to attack France. And, you know, founding fathers really didn't even intend that there be campaigning. There wasn't really campaigning at the top of the ticket because the idea was that the man should not seek the office. The office should seek the man. And what happened with Callender is he wound up having to serve time in jail for slander. And you even had Martha Washington get in on the game saying that Jefferson was one of the most detestable of mankind. Yeah. So <laughs> maybe if Martha Washington had a Twitter account, it might be more like today. <laughs> My thing with today is that the news cycle has gotten so short and the election season has gotten so long. It just feels like you're constantly slapped over the head with this new kind of nasty. Yeah. That said, next question. <laughs> This one is also recorded from Jonathan, who is 16 years old and lives in Portland, Oregon. Hello, I'm Jonathan from Portland. I'm a big fan of the podcast, and it is one of my main sources of political news. In addition to your show, I also watch some comedic pieces on the 2016 election from people like Stephen Colbert and John Oliver. My question for you is, what is your opinion of these political comedy shows, and how much should I be listening to them as the election process continues? Thanks so much. So our NPR colleague, Eric Deggins, who's the TV critic, did a really interesting piece a couple months back about the new role of late night and comedians and how particularly in these like politicized times that they seem to have taken on the role that used to be given to uh, TV anchorman, that they have become sort of like voices, voices of, God. Of, of of conscience yeah. and, and of um, integrity in a way that, you know, we don't view people in the media anymore. Uh, and his example of that was after the, the the tragic shootings in Orlando, all of the late night hosts uh, came out and had monologues and had statements and had opinions about these things. And it's an interesting time we live in in this election. I do think that people like Stephen Colbert and John Oliver and John Stewart before them have a real amount of credibility among American voters, particularly Jonathan said he was 16, particularly among young viewers and millennials. Yeah. I've said I miss John Stewart during this election. He always had a way to frame things, you know, whatever side you were on. Uh, that was, I think, better than what you're seeing still now. Yeah. I also think shows like John Oliver's show and Colbert's show, I mean, they employ and maintain like rigorous fact checkers, yes. research associates. I mean, they run their own little mini newsrooms. They just present the news in, in a more like stylized way and with a comedic slant to it. But they don't present false information. They just present it through a lens of comedy. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, I'm not particularly a fan of consuming too much of that content myself. Um, I think at their best, these hosts shine lights where they should be 
shown. Um, at the worst, they can be a little too preachy and sanctimonious for my taste. That's true. Um, so you got to, I mean, like, it should be part of a healthy, balanced news diet. It's the news buffet. It's like whenever folks say to me, I only listen to NPR, I'm like, you're doing it wrong. Right. You, should, <laughs> you, you should read something. So, like, th- there's space for the John Olivers and the NPRs and the this and the that. Like, make it part of a healthy news diet. But laughter is good medicine, right? Especially this campaign. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, for sure. Um, also, Jonathan, thank you for listening, man. Appreciate it. Next question comes to us from Sherry in Arizona. She writes, quote, I've been pondering the numerous presidential polls that are in the news every week. Which ones are the best for us to use? For example, Pew Research Center, Quinnipiac, ABC, NBC, CBS, etc. And how do you determine best? For example, how do you as reporters determine which polls are conducted in a nonpartisan manner, which ones are asking the better questions, etc.? Keep up the great work. Well, I find out what polls are good by asking Domenico. Yeah, we just so. asked Domenico whether we should <laughs> Domenico, pay attention to the poll minutes. or not. Go. Go. <laughs> Um, I always say to everyone, look at the trends. Trend lines are the most important things in polls. Uh, Real Clear Politics has done a nice job averaging the polls. I think that's one good way to look at things. Uh, the, traditionally, the best polls are ones that are live caller telephone polls. Uh, they can call cell phones, robo polls, uh, the ones that ask you press one if you like this or that. Those are not allowed to call cell phones at this point. There's been a lot of experimenting going on in this campaign with online panels and online surveys. Those are generally thought to be less reliable. I used to work at NBC. The NBC Wall Street Journal poll is a very good poll. You don't see a lot of um, volatility in it. And when there's a change, it means something. Uh, And you know that those polls are conducted well. And what always drives me nuts about campaigns saying that they're biased is because that poll, the ABC poll, the Fox News poll, they're all conducted by two different firms, one Democratic firm, one Republican firm, and they match their results huh. and it makes it far less agenda driven. I did not know that. Yeah. So yeah. all of these major polls are having the same guys crunch the numbers? Yeah. N- yeah, not the same exact people, but there will be the same different firms. types yeah. of firms. But they uh, one, okay. So like the NBC poll has heart research uh-huh. with uh, public opinion strategies. Heart research is a Democratic firm. Public opinion strategies uh, okay. is a Republican firm. Uh, not everyone does that. Some universities do their own polling gotcha. uh, and do it in a nonpartisan way. Uh, but there are people with good track records. Again, I go back to volatility. When you see polls that are showing month to month or week to week big changes and jumps, there's usually something, something wrong. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you for your question, Sherry. And thank you, Domenico, for knowing them polls. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question is also recorded from Carrie in Oregon. Hello, NPR Politics. This is Kerry from Hood River, Oregon. My question is this. Both Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton are older candidates, as you've reported on the podcast, and they both have high negatives. Is this a recipe for a single-term presidency if either one wins? Thank you. (laughs) Well, not necessarily, and Sue might be better to talk about this because of the... uh, age of the average the average age of people that she hangs out with every day on Capitol Hill. Oh, 70s like the new 35 <laughs> if you're a senator. I mean, you know, I feel like <laughs> age is relative in politics, yeah. you know. Age it's all about how you feel. Age how, ain't nothing but a number on Capitol Hill. <laughs> how old was Reagan when he left office? Uh he, well, he was 69 when he was sworn in so he uh, left for his first term. Mid to late 70s. 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, it can be done. Oh yeah. Sure. I mean, 
Yeah. I mean, John McCain, when he ran in 2008, was 72, and he's running for re-election this year at 80. Yeah. Also, the thing with negatives, they change over time. Yeah. Hillary Clinton has high negatives right now. There was a point a few years ago where she had very low negatives. Um, So we shouldn't say that just because one of these candidates will win the election with high negatives that they're going to have high negatives for the next four years. That's true because what's most important in these elections is how they will govern and just, you know, what do they accomplish? I mean, does Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump... Uh, accomplish things that wind up helping the country. That will be critical to a reelect for either. Also, we don't know what's going to be driving this campaign a week from now, yeah. let alone the <laughs> dynamic in the country True four debt. years from True now. True debt. Yeah. But thank you for your question. All right, next question is recorded from Alice. Here it goes. Hi, NPR Politics. My name is Alice and I'm from Ireland, now living in London. Every time I see a person on TV explaining why they won't vote for Hillary, they say the key reason is trust. They don't think she is trustworthy. Given that Donald Trump has continually flip-flopped on issues, gone from one extreme to the other, blatantly denied doing and saying things that there is proof of him having said or done in the past, it seems it would be very hard to describe his actions as trustworthy. Is there something else going on? Is the trustworthy line a front for sexism? Really, my question is, are they being held to the same standards? Thanks, Mel. Well, I think the reason why we focus so much on Hillary's trustworthiness is that is the characteristic when you poll people about the two candidates that has been her Achilles heel from day one and has never has always been. I mean, has been her Achilles heel for a lot of her career in politics and particularly in this campaign. That said, when you poll other characteristics, she continually does better than Donald Trump. On the flip side, the thing that Donald Trump and uh, this laundry list that she references of, of his weaknesses, I think, comes through again and again in polls where people he consistently polls high among people who don't think he's fit to be president. And that is his biggest weakness. And I think those are the two things that you see both campaigns trying to repeatedly hit at for Trump towards Clinton and Clinton towards Trump. You know, when you play into the core vulnerability of the thing that sticks, which is kind of how narratives form, uh, you wind up getting in the news more because it plays into this preconceived notion about you. You know, what's interesting, and Sue mentioned this, but in polling, Donald Trump is seen as just as untrustworthy as Hillary Clinton. Uh, And he's been far less transparent in many ways in this campaign. So I think a lot of it does have to do with narrative. I think for some people, it's also a rationalization and an excuse for polarization. I mean, it's people are pretty much in their corners. And the people who you'll hear saying she's not trustworthy for the most part are people who were never going to vote for a Democrat in the first place. And the same is true on the other side. So I've been thinking a lot about this question because I saw it a few days in advance. And I think for me, a lot of what I think about when I think about whether the standards are different is kind of breaking down what kind of presentation of self and narrative of self these candidates present. When you think about Trump, his entire campaign, he has said, I am not PC. I am spontaneous. I shoot from the hip. My whole thing is constantly flipping the script. And so when you say that that's who you are, it allows you to get away with a lot more Mm -hmm. of the things that Trump has done. Whereas Hillary Clinton's entire narrative in this campaign is someone who is a testament to competence with a strong resume, who's been doing this for 30 years and is very good at making the ships sail on time. And so when you build your whole character on one of competence, anything that's not that, it just sticks harder. 
you know? But I also think that we have to look at why someone like Hillary Clinton has to build a resume and a narrative about herself on competence. And I think part of what we're seeing there is a lot of times women and people of color who rise to spots of power have to defend why they got there. Mm -hmm. And I think that for Hillary Clinton, there are a lot of people that might want to say she's only here because she married Bill or she's only getting support because she's a woman. And part of why Hillary Clinton is always saying, I did this and I did that and my resume has this and that and I'm good at all these things is because she is doing a thing that lots of women and people of color have to do and prove why they got there. It's part of the same reason why in 08, every two days, someone had to point out that Obama went to Harvard. That wasn't just because he went to Harvard. It was to prove that he deserved to be there, right? But it's important to remember that who we think these candidates are is influenced in every way by things like gender and race. Sexism and racism exist. They're harder to measure because people don't admit to them. Yeah. And it's unconscious bias, right? I mean, there's certainly some element of this. There is sexism in in, in this in some ways. It's just hard to put a quantitative number on it. All right. Next question. Moving along. Uh, It's another recorded question from Sarah in Wisconsin. Hey, NPR Politics. This is Sarah from Middleton, Wisconsin. I love the show. I hope to be Ron Elving when I grow up someday. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) Uh, And uh, I'm calling to ask if there are any down ballot races you guys have found yourselves kept coming back to, like if you each have a favorite down ballot race that you've been watching. Thanks, guys. Love the show. Keep doing it. Thanks for your question. I'm feeling like, Sue, you got to have something on this. <laughs> yeah, Wisconsin actually has a great Senate race, but uh, that's not the one that I would say is I've been watching the most. I would say to me the most fascinating down ballot race uh, has been the Ohio Senate race. The incumbent is a Republican senator named Rob Portman. He is facing a former popular Democratic governor named Ted Strickland, and we are about two months out from Election Day, and Rob Portman has all but won that race. Uh, The SCC, which is the Senate Democrats campaign operation, has withdrawn the troops. Uh, The executive director of the DSCC had a great quote where he said, uh, Rob Portman has run a damn fine race and the rest I'll have to tell you over a drink. Um, (laughs) What I think the thing that's so fascinating about this is you have an incumbent Republican who is tied to the Bush administration. He's running in a battleground state in which he started the race in some polls down by double digits. He has pitched essentially a perfect game in very tough circumstances and run a remarkable campaign and has probably rewritten the playbook for how to run a race in a state when the metrics and the mood are all against you. And the fact that two months out from Election Day in Ohio against a strong candidate, he has essentially locked that race down, assuming nothing crazier out of the ordinary happens, is really remarkable, particularly in this election climate. He has run hands down the best down ballot race of the cycle. I mean, and I was going to bring up Ohio the Senate race too, because he's a former trade rep who's running in Ohio, apparently winning that race by quite a bit. And Donald Trump is at the top of the ticket, who's now anti-trade. Yeah. And what if both of them win it and Portman outperforms him? (laughs) We're almost there, y'all. Last question. We're lucky today. It's a song. Let's hear it. Hey, NPR Politics Podcast. This is Mira from Washington, D.C. I had a question, and I thought I would give it a shot with a song, and I apologize to your other listener because I stole the idea for the melody from him, but it got stuck in my head, and I couldn't help it. (laughs) Hey, NPR Podcast, give me the news. Uh, How come no one's discussing Trump's religious views? It seems (laughs) that Cruz supporters would be on the fence. Or did he solve that problem when he picked Mike Pence? Nice. (laughs) I assume he's sort of Christian, but I don't know why. Maybe just because he is an older white guy. It seems that being (laughs) faithful is what he has to do. Gee, politics podcast, Trump you. 
Just kidding. <laughs> wow. Love you guys. Thanks for all your hard work. Bye. That was real nice. That was from one of my favorite uh, musicals. So which musical great. is that? Uh, West Side Story. Oh yeah. And it's true. Mike Pence is is very popular with religious conservatives, uh, and it's one big reason why Donald Trump picked him before the Republican National Convention to sort of shore up that flank of the Republican Party. Mike Pence likes to say that he's a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that, in that order. order. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, I think it's important to point out that, like, Trump's evangelical support is actually just white evangelical support. <laughs> Um, there's an interesting conundrum about, to me, it feels like Trump did a better job of appealing to these white evangelicals' whiteness than to the religion. And one was enough. It depends on your, I mean, really, it depends on your priorities. I mean, you know, if their priority was having a guy who was very religious, then they wouldn't have gone with Donald Trump because he's not very religious by all reports. So, you know, he went to a church. Uh, in Manhattan, they talked about that was led by Norman Vincent Peale, who is known for his book, The Power of Positive Thinking, which really, if you go and read some passages, it explains a lot of what you need to know about Donald Trump. Essentially, if you think it, if you believe it, it is. Speak it into existence. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with the suggestion that his religious views have not been discussed. I think they were discussed more extensively in the Republican primary where religious voters and evangelical voters play a weightier role in determining the outcome. Uh, And he did lose significant numbers of evangelical voters against Ted Cruz. Mm -hmm. It just was not enough to change the outcome of the primary races. I think that also evangelical voters play a smaller role in the general election when the voters you're going for are like swing, less partisan voters. If you are a regular churchgoer and a regular voter at this point in this campaign, your mind's pretty much made up. I think what we've seen with the ability for Trump to do what he did without being so religious is that we're seeing a kind of diminished importance, I think, of the evangelical voting bloc in the GOP. I think that in 2000 and 2004, there's fights over gay marriage and, and like the Bush era, they were a force. And I think that as gay marriage becomes less of a thing people are talking about and some of these culture war issues fade into a background under bigger issues in people's minds like terrorism and immigration, religious type issues, I think, matter less in this election than they did before. We'll also remember that one of the biggest driving issues for evangelical voters specifically is abortion and Supreme Court nominees. If uh, there is right. one group of voters you hear that a lot from, it is even Christian, social conservative evangelical voters. And the fact that Trump has very specifically on that issue, even going so far as to put out names of people he would nominate yes. and saying he would very much nominate in the vein of Antonin Scalia, the conservative justice who passed away, that I think has been a very mollifying effect on conservatives. If you are a single issue voter, he has told them exactly what they need to hear yeah okay thank you for your question it was a great singing uh before we go got to give a shout out to james lucas he is a lieutenant commander in the navy who wrote to us all the way from belgium with this very important message for you domenico all right he says quote first off love the show thank you for all the time and effort you put into it i do have to say though i don't get the big deal of apple removing the headphone jack as they are providing a free (laughs) lightning to headphone jack adapter with the iphone 7 it seems the phone will therefore be more streamlined water resistant and the additional battery capacity will help offset the only issue i see (laughs) which is using wired headphones at the same time you want to charge your phone 
Cheers. Very respectfully, James E. Lucas, Lieutenant Commander, United States Navy. Well, I just want to say thank you, Lieutenant Commander Lucas. Uh, I, as I noted in the podcast yesterday, as this was my can't let it go, I did not have a deep knowledge or level of understanding of what exactly was going on. I was late to the parade for even knowing that Apple was getting rid of the iPhone jack. So I have learned uh, some things here and I feel somewhat more comforted. However, I still believe that when you hear free, uh, yeah, it's one of those things that they could maybe tweak and charge you for later. But maybe that's just a conspiracy. We got like a lot of letters about the headphone issue. Really? In like the first few hours when the podcast was out. <laughs> well, you know, sorry that's that I'm in thing. the tunnel. <laughs> but you know a lot about polls. <laughs> Unfortunately. Okay. That's all the mail for today. I am about to go home and get up on this NyQuil, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you can catch more of our political coverage at nprpolitics.org. A reminder to write us with your questions or record them and send them to nprpolitics at npr.org. We'll be back in your podcast feed with a new episode very, very soon. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast.